Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. With the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, states are codifying their own abortion rights laws or bans. How will these laws prohibiting abortion impact our privacy, including how online information about us is used? Today, where we live, from period tracking apps to online searches and location data stored on phones, we talk with experts about how personal data could be used to prosecute those seeking abortions. Coming up, we hear from the Electronic Frontier Foundation and from the Washington Post's tech policy reporter. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or share a comment on Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom, Nora Benavidez, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. Nora, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Lydia XZ Brown, Policy Counsel for the Privacy and Data Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Lydia, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with Nora. You have said this digital safety debacle was, quote, decades in the making. So break that down for us. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think in since Dobbs has come out and overturned Roe v. Wade, so many people are now talking about how our privacy is linked to abortion access. And this is something that isn't new. I hope from this moment, this sort of cracking open of the conversation regarding our data, our privacy, I hope what we really can begin to do is actually understand all of the ways that our privacy is linked to other freedoms. You know, in many ways, Roe v. Wade was a privacy ruling. Um, you know, back in the 1970s, the right to an abortion stemmed from the right to privacy. And that goes even further back to the 1800s. And without getting into a history lesson here, we're really sort of, um, I think it's good to remember that the right to be left alone is one that this country was founded on. The idea that we could be free from government invasion. And yet what we've seen in the digital age is intervention and invasions left and right. Our digital footprint is really available for anyone who either wants to pay for it or otherwise gain access in other avenues. And so I look at the landscape facing us of what the digital world is doing in this post-Roe reality. And what it really means is that there are going to be very novel questions about what it means to provide and obtain an abortion. That includes questions around the internet as our primary pathway for information, for healthcare, for mailing our healthcare, telehealth, all kinds of implications that we have to now think through. 
And there's already uh, been examples of how our digital footprint or digital evidence, rather, has been used to criminalize people seeking abortions, Nora, um, thinking about search histories to text messages and emails. I wanted to mention a 2020 study from Upturn that found that law enforcement agencies use what's known as mobile device forensic tools or MDFTs. So tell us about the precedent and your concerns. Sure. I mean, this is such an interesting area, uh, at least as a civil rights lawyer, and certainly in the work I now do thinking about how technology is the frontier for civil rights. We are seeing a, a really troubling rise in what police are doing with data. Increasingly, they are searching the data on our cell phones as part of the arrests that they make. Usually this is for pretty low level criminal charges. And our devices reveal so much about our lives. So cell phone activity that police get during arrests can now include a number of things. It can include the phone calls we've made, phone calls specifically made at specific locations, the various apps we've been using, our photos, our emails, our search engine results, all of that up for grabs for police to use in the ways that they are kind of building a case against people. Of course, in the now abortion context, what we've seen is Dobbs overruled the fundamental right that abortion is constitutionally protected. And so it's up to the states to now decide whether that is a protected right or not. And unfortunately, we have seen dozens of states begin to introduce laws to criminalize both abortion seekers and providers. And so it opens up the space now for us to be incredibly concerned about how police may try to build a case against women or providers in the abortion context. You know, after the reversal of Roe v. Wade, um, people were focusing on data collected even from period tracking apps. So these are apps like Flow, which NPR reported has about 43 million active users. But again, when we just think about one particular app collecting or gathering information, that's just the tip of the iceberg, Nora? Yeah, it is. I'm glad you asked about the period tracking apps. They're, they're sort of I think some false concern that this is the end all and be all when it comes to our privacy rights and that suddenly we've seen this, uh, you know, swirling of concern that we have to all get rid of these apps if we have them or have been using them. You know, period tracking apps are a way that people engage in a number of different manners to track their own health. Um, these, the information is only circumstantial though, especially if a police department uh, is trying to build a case, a criminal case against people, the information from something like flow is what we call only circumstantial. And so there are kind of a lot of other reasons that you can think someone might not actually be updating their tracker. It could, of course, be that they are pregnant, uh, which then could lead police to question where else they have been. But frankly, there are just practical reasons that someone might not be filling in their information. You know, they could have stopped using their app altogether. They could have just forgotten. Uh, and so there are a number of other more dangerous questions before us about our digital footprint beyond these apps. 
there are some steps people can be taking to make sure that they are as protected as possible if they are using these apps, such as using one that is uh, based in Europe, which will, in many instances, not share data in the same ways with U.S. law enforcement. But generally, what we've seen is in the, the last several weeks, several of these apps have made public statements to tighten their privacy protections, to make sure that the data they collect is either anonymized or otherwise protected from the reach of law enforcement. Again, that's Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Gabrielle's calling in from Old Lyme. What did you want to share? Hi. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to say, you know, fascinating conversation. I work in data privacy and cybersecurity, and I think it's we all have assumptions about how much data privacy protects individuals and how much regulation is out there. And it's really a significant lack compared to what we have in cybersecurity. And even that's not so much. Um, I think it's fascinating how much information we share and presume that organizations are uh, safe, safe keepers of that data. And it's really just not there. There's, there's so little teeth in it. Um, but I just want to share that. I'm, I'm excited to hear the rest of this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Uh, Lydia XC Brown is here again, policy counsel with the Privacy and Data Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Lydia, can you respond to our caller and you know some of the questions you've been fielding uh, after the Dobbs decision? This is Lydia. Thank you so much for that question. You know, a lot of people are concerned about what kinds of information about their lives is actually protected or not. And when it comes to reproductive health care information, many people might erroneously believe that their information is protected by health privacy law, namely HIPAA. But unfortunately, what many people don't realize is that HIPAA's scope is extremely limited. And HIPAA only protects information that is held by actual medical providers, your doctors, and by insurance companies. If the information is held by any other entity, a third-party app, a website, a tech company or a fraudulent crisis pregnancy center, then that data is not protected by HIPAA. And even information that is protected by HIPAA can still be disclosed to law enforcement if there is a court order authorizing that disclosure. And people don't necessarily understand not only that their information is not probably protected by HIPAA, but that a wide wide swath of information can be used potentially against people seeking abortions. That can be your search history, your browsing history, your credit card or debit card statements, your actual medical records, your location history or data on your cell phone, and even the content of your communications, your text messages, your emails, your messages through instant messaging apps and other social media websites and programs. All of that data could potentially be used against you if you are seeking an abortion or if you are supporting somebody in seeking an abortion. So everything you've outlined is pretty troubling, Lydia, for listeners uh, who may be wondering, well, say I'm using a particular app or I'm on um, my browser and I'm searching, are there ways to opt out or to protect their privacy? People should take certain steps if they can to minimize what data they are providing on their own devices. 
But the problem is that even if individual people are trying to take those steps, companies and apps still have an obligation to protect their users. If you're worried about what data your phone or apps might be collecting on you and with whom that data could be sold or shared or to whom it could be overturned, you can check your device's general privacy settings. You can make sure that location data is only collected and shared if necessary for an app to function. If you are going somewhere sensitive, whether or not it's related to reproductive health care, don't bring your phone if it's at all possible to avoid doing that. You can check what apps have access to your location information, your microphone, your camera, and your photos. You can limit your personalized ads across your device, in your browser, or in other apps. You can opt out of personalized ads on Facebook or Google. You should use encrypted chat or messaging. You should consider using a more secure browser and search service like the Tor browser or VPN or using the DuckDuckGo search service, which does not track information about your searches or your results. You should not turn over your phone to police or let the police look at it unless they have a warrant. And you can take all those steps, right? And you should, if you are able to, if you need support in doing so, ask a friend, but we have to remember that companies have an obligation to think critically about how they too can limit what potentially sensitive information they're collecting in the first place and how long they retain that information for. Mm -hmm. Because if they're collecting less information and keeping it for a shorter amount of time, then that's less data than could be turned over about you. Yeah, we'll be talking more about that coming up on the show. But in, through your work, Lydia, uh, with the Privacy and Data Project, when we think about the people we're talking about uh, who are most at risk of how this uh, the digital evidence or online surveillance is being used, who are we talking about here? The universe of potential surveillance affects everyone. But as many of us know as advocates, people who are from marginalized communities people who are lower income, people in the LGBTQ community, people of color, especially immigrants and refugees and black and brown people have always been subjected to heightened scrutiny and surveillance. And that's still true about our digital footprints, about what types of surveillance we might be subjected to through ordinary usage of cell phones or computers. And the ramifications of using someone's search history, someone's health information, or even the content of somebody's location data, somebody's advertising history, or all these other data points that could be used against somebody, disproportionately put at risk marginalized people for more surveillance and potential criminalization. So one example of that that we're seeing being reported on right now are patients who've received prescriptions in the past for methotrexate, which is a very common uh, drug used to treat uh, a range of autoimmune diseases as well as people with cancer. Those patients are now seeing access to methotrexate denied with pharmacies unwilling to fill prescriptions, even in states where abortion care has not been outlawed because methotrexate is also a common treatment used for an ectopic pregnancy or one that is 100% fatal to the fetus and potentially fatal to the pregnant person as well. But methotrexate's primary use 
is for people who have those autoimmune conditions. And people who have autoimmune conditions are more likely to have uteruses. They're more likely to come from black and brown communities. And as a result, are now facing this heightened scrutiny and potential inability to access a disease management medication that keeps people functional, right? And part of that data has come out of assumptions about what a person might be using methotrexate for. And we're seeing examples of this in so many different areas of people's lives where people who are wealthier have the option to opt for more expensive infusion treatments. People who are wealthier are more likely to be able to afford iPhones that have stronger data protection settings and capabilities. People that might have access to more economic security through their job or people who have the freedom to be able to travel without severe consequences who are more likely to have access to privilege and resources in a myriad of ways are less likely to have to worry about what their search history might reveal. That's Lydia Exe Brown, Policy Counsel for the Privacy and Data Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Thank you, Lydia, for that information. We appreciate it today. If you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, Radio Nora Benavidez is still with us, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. And coming up after a short break, we're going to talk with the Washington Post tech policy reporter about online surveillance and who already has our information. The Electronic Frontier Foundation also j- joins us. What can tech companies and the federal government do to protect our digital data? You can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The U.S. Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade has thrust conversations about reproductive rights into the spotlight. But how could the way we live our lives online, our digital data, be targeted in states that move forward with laws prosecuting those seeking abortions? And what role do tech companies and the federal government play? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live, to help us answer those questions. Joining us now on the phone is Kat Zakreski, who's the Washington Post technology policy reporter. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. 
So you've been covering tech platforms, also Washington's regulation attempts. So uh, can you help put the Dobbs decision in context when we think about this broader conversation about tech regulation? Of course. So for about five years now, there's been an increasing push in Washington to regulate um, some of the largest tech companies. But so far, despite a series of high-profile hearings with CEOs and attempts to pass legislation, very little has actually come of that to date. And so what we've been seeing is a flurry of activity at the state level to try to regulate the companies, um, whether that's you know, efforts like in California to pass data privacy legislation or in conservative states like Texas and Florida to regulate content moderation. And now in light of the Dobbs situation, we're kind of seeing that play out in an even more pronounced way um, because basically these companies are going to be navigating a patchwork of different state laws on abortion and the types of attempts we're going to see from law enforcement to access data. And so already we're seeing companies grappling with states considering um, you know, wildly different laws around what responsibility they have to either take down information about abortion or to protect people's reproductive health data. And I believe tech companies have been clear they're going to comply with state laws and legal court orders that they may receive right to date. But when we think about some of the data that is available, like mobile location tracking, how big of a concern is this? It's a major concern. I mean, I think, um, you know, one area that we've seen companies take action so far is uh, with Google recently making an announcement that it would no longer store certain types of sensitive location data, such as, as if you were visiting, um, you know, a, a reproductive health clinic. And so, um, you know, that I think is a warning sign of just the mass amounts of data that these companies are collecting and, uh, you know, have in their reserves. Um, it's one thing for Google to take that step, but there is a, an entire uh, industry of data brokers that have access to that information. And there's a wide variety of other apps. And, you know, I think location data is just one piece of this, as your guests on the show have already talked about um, in cases that we've seen across the country so far, where um, prosecutors have been looking for evidence of a woman seeking abortion, they've used things like search histories text messages. And sometimes, you know, the company is not even part of the equation. And we've seen people, um, whether the person seeking an abortion or their romantic partner or a friend turn over that data willingly. So, uh, you know, I think there's just such a broad range of data that's at stake here. And, you know, in the context of what I cover in tech regulation, it really comes down to this fact that there's been uh, you know, so little regulatory action on these issues. Uh, despite, you know, many efforts over the last 20 years, there still really isn't a comprehensive federal privacy uh, law in the United States that would protect some of this kind of data. So, you know, people are really left to, uh, you know, what state laws they might have on the books or um, really are looking to the companies in many ways to create policies where they're maybe collecting less data um, or in some other way taking a stand against any overly broad law enforcement requests. 
can we go back to data brokers uh, that you had mentioned? We think about, you know, who has this information, how easy it is to get. I understand motherboard reporters are able to purchase large amounts of location data near one clinic for less than $200. How is this still possible when we think about, you know, all the ways that, that lawmakers have talked about uh, making sure uh, that uh, privacy and how to regulate these companies, uh, you know, is so important. Uh, tell us more about that. It's a really important point because I think um, as much of a focus as there is on tech companies and what data they hand over, you know, often we're talking about that in the context of warrants. But when we talk about data brokers, these third-party companies that collect data from a wide variety of apps and sources across the internet, um, they often are in the business of selling that data. And law enforcement has realized that that is a workaround in a lot of ways to the Fourth Amendment and that they can just buy data from these groups. And so there have been efforts in Congress. Senator Wyden has introduced legislation that would prohibit law enforcement from buying, um, you know, data from data brokers um, to use as evidence in investigations. But so far, uh, you know, those bills have, have not passed. And so I think the one thing to watch is these issues around data brokers and collection of data affect our lives across the board in, in contexts beyond just reproductive health. But the Roe decision has really put these practices into focus. And um, in the near future, we're likely to see cases that rely on these types of data techniques and raise public awareness about them. So some of the privacy advocates who I spoke to have worked on these issues for years, as concerned as they are about this moment, there is somewhat of a hope that these issues around Roe and the public attention on data brokers and, and this use of data could, you know, really be a turning point that would force Congress to take more decisive action on these types of practices. So there's Congress, but I know you've also done reporting on the Federal Trade C Commission. You know, what can and has been done? Right. So the Federal Trade Commission has effectively become the de facto privacy regulator for the federal government. And basically, the Federal Trade Commission has the power to go after companies that make misleading statements to consumers. So let's say, um, you know, a company says your data has been anonymized or, um, you know, makes certain claims about privacy. If the Federal Trade Commission discovers evidence that hey, maybe in fact that data is not anonymous um, and you can be identified. Or if, you know, there's been certain promises made around privacy and then, you know, there's a massive data breach where it shows that the company did not stick to its policies. The FTC has the power to investigate that and, um, you know, in some cases uh, impose penalties or settlements with companies to address that. Um, there's also, um, you know, some powers that the FTC specifically has under the children's online privacy protections. And so the FTC has said in light of the Roe decision that it's going to use all the powers at its disposal to try to protect reproductive health data. Um, and I think, you know, really this is an interesting test for the FTC chair, Lena Khan, who's been in her position for about a year and has really come in saying that she wants to take a broad interpretation of what this agency's powers are, um, has talked about, you know, using that 
power to create new privacy rules within the FTC. And certainly, um, you know, I think observers of that process are closely watching how she responds to Roe and any, uh, you know, cases she might bring against, you know, some of these data brokers or other companies that we've been discussing. Uh, since you brought up Chair Khan, you know, you've also done reporting on you know that tumultuous first year uh, since she's become chair, and there's declining staff morale. And so, how could that impact uh, the the agency's ability uh, to handle you know again these requests uh, and to come up with some um, guidance and regulation? It could have a major impact. I mean, I think the FTC's ability to craft regulations and bring novel cases against companies and data brokers really relies on the staff. Um, These uh, jobs require technologists. They require legal experts who have a strong understanding of both how technology works and, um, you know, ways that the limited privacy laws the United States has on the books can be applied in these types of cases. And so any decline in morale is really worrisome because obviously people with that kind of expertise have many options in the private sector as well. And so in order to, you know, recruit and retain them into these jobs within the FTC, you need to have, um, you know, strong morale, strong feeling of mission within the agency. Um, So, you know, my understanding from reading letters Chair Khan has sent and as well as an interview I did with her in June is that she's taking the morale issues very seriously and trying to turn uh, that around. Also, um, you know, when some of those studies on employee morale were taken, the agency was in a 2-2 deadlock. And um, as of very recently, they now have a Democratic majority again and should likely be able to move more decisively with some of her more ambitious ideas. And so, um, you know, some people I talked to within the agency were optimistic that just the more action the FCC takes, the better morale would improve. That's uh, Kat Zakreski again, Washington Post technology policy reporter. I wanted to bring back into the conversation Nora Benavidez, who's senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press. Uh, Nora, what's your take on what uh, Kat shared related to the Federal Trade Commission and the next steps that it can take? Well, it's great to hear from Kat and sort of the ways that she's laid out so much of what's before us, what both the government can do from the congressional perspective as well as the FTC. You know, so far, so much of what we've discussed in the first half of the hour in this segment has been really on the concerns of how our data may be used by police, by the government, other intelligence community uh, and sectors. And the bigger issue that the FTC can take on is not just how the government itself may be weaponizing or gaining access through loopholes to our data. There's a bigger issue at play when it comes to our privacy and the abusive data practices that are happening online. And the FTC is well positioned now to really step in. Um, And this is in part because there are so many actors that are taking part in this economy, this kind of surveillance capitalist economy in which we often don't know what is being extracted from our online experiences. 
Um, the way that our identities are then targeted, micro-targeted in many instances. And so the FTC, as one of those vanguards to protect consumers against deceptive practices, against unfair and otherwise um, dangerous practices that companies are engaging in, can now exercise authority in a number of ways. Of course, a lot of that comes back to, as Kat said, the fact that there is a majority for clear rules to be made against abusive data practices. This can help to safeguard reproductive rights, access to healthcare, other things fundamental to what we've been talking about today. And I hope that what we will see over the coming months and years is a rulemaking, an open and participatory rulemaking in which the FTC can build a record showing the kinds of harms that are caused by our extractive data practices. Um, that can be everything from the ways that online social media platforms are monitoring what we do, crafting personas about us. Uh, often that leads to what we call digital redlining, online discrimination. This is part and parcel of everything else we've talked about when it comes to the abuse that law enforcement engage in when they also extract our data. And so a rule, a kind of set of guidelines and ways that consumers can be protected could help mitigate these kinds of harmful practices. And that's embedded in every sector of society. But as Lydia mentioned, we know that these are especially harmful to historically disadvantaged communities. So I hope over the coming years now, as the FTC looks to and has even teased that it's going to begin a rulemaking proceeding, we'll really see the beginning of a reigning in of the misuse of online data. And you've uh, authored a piece uh, that's linked on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live about the actions the FTC and Congress can take. I wanted to let our listeners know and to get another perspective on uh, the role of tech companies and all of this. Uh, joining us now on the phone is Cindy Cohn, executive director of Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization defending civil liberties in the digital world. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So from EFF's or Electronic Frontier Foundation's perspective, you know, what do you want to see from tech companies here? Well, I think it's important to remember that tech companies um, can do a lot of things here, but they really can't do all of it. We, we, we actually need to act on, on the legislative side. We've talked about the regulatory side um, as well as the tech companies because we didn't get here because of just one problem and we're not going to get out of it with just one solution. But EFF um, has uh, has a uh, pretty long blog post with a long list of things that tech companies could do to help make it better. I would say the first thing that we, we want that tech companies need to do, and people who are workers at tech companies have been some of the strongest advocates for changes inside those organizations. So I don't think it's just the CEOs should, who should be listening. It's the rank and file folks um, as well that you know, these companies need to allow pseudonymous access. They need to allow people not to have to use their real names when they access information, especially sensitive information. They need to stop behavioral tracking. This industry has become dependent on a surveillance business model that has always been a problem and now is particularly dangerous for people who are seeking uh, reproductive information and people who are trying to help them. 
Um, they need to not collect the data in the first place. They need to not keep the data that they do need to collect very long. You know, your phone needs to know where you are so that it will ring, but it doesn't need to keep that information for very long after that. Um, they need to continue to encrypt data in transit. They need to enable end-to-end encryption by default, and law enforcement needs to get out of the way of people having true security on their devices. Um, And then, you know, many of the apps that people use uh, collect location information and other sensitive information. Um, You can, by going into your app one by one, turn a lot of that off, but it'd be much better if the platforms um, and the apps, the app makers just turned a lot of that stuff off by default. Uh, Many apps have a secondary income stream by uh, putting tracking into an app that otherwise does really pretty something else. Um, And those apps are particularly dangerous because we are discovering that many of the, much of that information is now being packaged and sold to law enforcement um, in a number of ways or otherwise being made available um, in ways that I think users are really not in a very good position to know about, much less stop. So um, there's a raft of things that uh, that uh, companies could do to really stand on the side of their users. Um, and, and again, EFF goes much deeper mm-hmm. uh, in those um, in a blog post that we put forward on May 10th, even before the Dobbs decision came out, as we were all anticipating it. Um, and of course, we're available to talk this through with anybody uh, who is developing an app or um, a, a platform and wants to make sure that they're standing on the side of the users, because there are some tricky questions here. Um, but really, the, I think the centerpiece of this is that this this surveillance business model is directly now um, actually has been directly hurting marginalized people for a very long time, but the list of people that it's dangerous for has gotten much, much broader with the Dobbs decision. Thank you for that, Cindy Cohn. Uh, Kat, uh, with the Washington Post, uh, you're still with us. I'm wondering if you could uh, chime in there when she talks about surveillance uh, advertising as part of the tech's business model. And there really is no history of tech companies wanting to take ethical uh, steps that could undermine this model. That's why we need Congress and the FTC to act here. I think that's right. It is, you know, against the company's business interests in many ways to take these steps to limit data collection. And I think that's one of the things that's so tricky in this debate is there's so much discussion right now of steps individuals can take um, where maybe that is limiting, uh, you know, your use of certain reproductive health apps or using encrypted apps. And those are all great steps and important steps to make. But at the same time, as we've talked about throughout the show, there's this entire economy of ways that people are being tracked across the internet. And it's really challenging for an individual to cover all of their bases, especially when they might be, you know, in a situation where they're seeking an abortion, which could potentially be a crisis situation where they might not have the time to, you know, think about the location settings on every phone. And so I think that really highlights the bigger structural problems here is that, you know, the businesses don't have the financial incentives to make these changes. And so it really comes down to that issue that we've been talking about since the beginning of the show, which is the inaction from the federal government to protect privacy. And, uh, you know, I know uh, this 
decision has has brought a lot more attention. As Cindy just mentioned, it's really expanded the number of people who could be negatively impacted by these surveillance data practices. And so I think it will really be a test for lawmakers. Um, You know, there's been years and years of talk about moving on privacy. Is this you know, the the decision from the Supreme Court that finally forces Congress to take more decisive action on this front. That's Kat Zakreski again, the Washington Post technology policy reporter. Thanks, Kat. Also to Cindy Cohn, executive director of Electronic Frontier Foundation. We'll find that checklist and share with our listeners as well. Coming up next, we're going to talk more about the communities most at risk when it comes to online surveillance and how their info could be used. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, earlier in the show, we heard about how prosecutors have used digital evidence like web searches in states that have laws criminalizing abortions. That was the case in 2018 when a Mississippi woman, Latisse Fisher, was charged with second degree murder after her pregnancy loss. The National Advocates for Pregnant Women, a legal defense fund, was involved in her case. And Dana Sussman joins us now, acting executive director of that organization. Dana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me this morning. Uh, so tell us about Latisse Fisher and what happened there. Well, Latisse um, experienced a pregnancy loss at home. And um, as many people do when they're uh, experiencing a medical emergency, she called an ambulance. Um, police and uh, first responders came to her home and um, they proceeded to ask her questions about her um, views towards her pregnancy, whether she had um, ambivalence towards being pregnant. Um, she had three young children. Um, she was actually an employee of the um, police department at the time. So she knew a lot of the people who were there. Uh, she thought to help her. And um, through questioning and through um, turning over um, a device, they were looking into her digital search history, her, her Google searches, um, because they suspected that she, um, or they, it raised suspicion, I suppose I should say, um, that she may have um, sought to end her pregnancy. But in fact, she maintained consistently throughout her experience that this was a pregnancy loss that was sudden and unexpected. And um, what is particularly um, important to note about this case is that um, the mention or the discussion around her search history um, was enough for the prosecutor to develop a, a legal theory surrounding this case. There was never any evidence or allegation that she had obtained medication abortion pills or that she had used medication abortion pills, but simply because um, they probed her views about her pregnancy and um, and and the fact that she had um, considered, you know, searched for different terms online was enough to, um, in the prosecutor's mind, to move ahead with um, with a criminal investigation. 
And what has happened to Latisse since then? The uh, prosecutor moved ahead with um, convening a grand jury and um, Ms. Fisher was originally indicted. Um, subsequent to that indictment, National Advocates for Pregnant Women and local advocates organized around um, meeting with the prosecutor, presenting medical evidence um, through medical experts that provided a more comprehensive picture of um, Ms. Fisher's pregnancy loss. And the prosecutor in the case voluntarily dismissed the original indictment, convened a new grand jury, which ultimately did not indict her um, that second time. Um, so she did not face a criminal trial or a conviction. Now, there was another case involving a woman named Pervy Patel, uh, which resulted in a now reverse conviction, also using digital evidence, I believe, text messages between Patel and a friend. Can you tell us briefly about that case? Yes. Um, Pervy Patel was um, charged with feticide, which is a um, usually it's a, a provision of the homicide statute. It, that Those laws exist in 38 states. They are laws that were always intended to um, sort of under the pretext uh, passed to protect pregnant people from violence. Um, to, uh, it allows a prosecutor to charge essentially a separate crime for harm to a fetus if a pregnant person is attacked. Um, in, in Ms. Patel's case, it was used to charge her with a crime for uh, self-managing an abortion with medication. It had never been applied, uh, feticide law had never been applied that way before. And as you mentioned, her text messages and communications with a friend and her online purchase of uh, medication abortion pills from an um, offshore pharmacy was essentially the um, critical evidence in the case for the prosecutor to assert that she had um, engaged in a, or self-managed an abortion. Ultimately, as you mentioned, the case was overturned after she was convicted to a 20-year sentence. Um, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned that conviction because the court determined that the feticide law was never intended to be applied in the way that it was applied. And that's a, a pattern of cases we've seen across the country um, where feticide laws are have been used against people for experiencing pregnancy loss, stillbirths, miscarriages, or uh, abortions. So these are two particular cases, but now we have the Dobbs decision. We know that there are 18 states that have either total or near bans, current or pending um, bans on abortion. And so I'm wondering when we think about your concerns through your organization about how marginal communities are already vulnerable to this kind of criminalization, what's going to happen now? Absolutely. So many of the points from um, the other, the experts you've spoken to today um, are resonate very much with the work that we're doing. We expect and we fear that pregnancy loss will be um, investigated and that this will not be universally sort of suspect pregnancy loss will not be universally um, applied um, and that communities that have already faced surveillance, criminalization, policing, family regulation involvement will be the communities that will face the brunt of, um, of investigations surrounding pregnancy loss. Medication, um, self-managed abortion through medication um, and a miscarriage are typically indistinguishable from a medical standpoint. Um, you will not be able, 
you know, doctors, providers may not be able to know if someone has self-managed an abortion. Um, and and self-managing through medication is exceedingly safe. It's the criminalization of that that makes it unsafe. Um, and so what we expect police and prosecutors to do is to look through um, text messages, communications, Google searches, um, things that are quite mundane and quite typical of people who are communicating with their friends and family about their personal decisions in there and, and what's going on in their lives. So we expect prosecutors to, in an attempt to build a case, look at that circumstantial information um, to understand if they expressed any ambivalence about their pregnancy, if they took any actions to obtain medication abortion pills, um, or sought information about it. Nora Benavidez is still with us, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. Uh, Nora, we just have a couple of minutes. Uh, what are your thoughts as we hear from Dana Sussman? You know, I mean, my thoughts are, of course, heavy because these are very real harms and very real threats to people and their livelihoods. Um, it also makes me think, of course, of the work we're doing at Free Press on solutions because we need, as so many of, I think, the speakers today have, have mentioned, a pretty wide array of interventions. We need data brokers to limit the kinds of things that they collect, retain, and we also need law enforcement to not be able to circumvent the loopholes that Dana has so clearly laid out that allow law enforcement and prosecutors to build these cases against people for things that have for many decades now been constitutionally protected rights. And so I think about the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. That is one of the most laser focused solutions that I have seen on the table, an opportunity for Congress to close the loophole that allows the government and intelligence community to purchase data whenever and however they choose. Um, these are direct violations of our privacy. And if we do not feel like we can exist in a space online where we have unfettered agency over our lives. We need then to make sure that the federal government and that other actors take their own measures into account now to stem these harmful practices. So I hope that we're able to move this kind of policy forward in the coming months. It is essential for our basic rights. We'll be sure to be bring up, bringing up uh, these issues with our Connecticut congressional delegation. That's Nora Benavidez, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. Thank you, Nora, for your time. Also, Dana Sussman, Acting Executive Director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico and Anya Grandowski.